0: chapter 8 and verse 1. Romans 8 and verse 1, let's read this verse again. It's a verse that is not only precious to us, but it's a verse that if we really believe it, it is powerful in our lives. If we sink the roots of our faith deep into what this verse is telling us about ourselves, it should result in radical Christian living because this is a verse about our security. It is is a verse about how we are, through Jesus Christ, now no longer under condemnation. We're, We're good with God. Our eternal destiny is secure. And therefore, we are free to be radical in loving others, taking on the concerns and the needs and the issues of others. It is an empowering verse. And So let's read it again. There is... Therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This morning I mentioned that we will study this verse by breaking it into four parts. Right now we're looking at the heart of the verse, the words, no condemnation. This is the glorious promise of the gospel, no condemnation. Now, in order for us to feel the glory of no condemnation, we have to, to make sure that we understand what this condemnation is that Paul is talking about that we as Christians have been saved from. And we've already seen that condemnation refers to a sentence handed down by a judge and that that judge is God. God and that condemnation is a sentence given to to criminals. We've seen that it is humanity that has transgressed the law of God. And we have begun to see the nature of this penalty, that it is that of an eternal death in a place called hell. We began noting this morning three aspects of this condemnation that Paul speaks about. And the first was that this condemnation is a present reality for every person who is outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mark my words, if you are here tonight and you are outside of Christ, you stand condemned this very moment. It is a present reality. You have already been declared guilty by Almighty God and all that awaits is the day when that sentence will be brought upon you. On the day Jesus comes back, which could be any moment, or on the day you die, which could be any moment, the wrath of God will come upon you if you are outside of Christ. Well, then we move to our second point, and it is that's where we are now. The this, this second truth about this condemnation, namely, it is a terrible condemnation. It is... Condemnation that will be experienced in that place called hell. Now, when I say that this condemnation is terrible, I do not mean that it is terrible in terms of morality. As we're going to see in a few moments, hell is a moral place, hell is a place of justice, hell is a place that ought to exist. And so it is not terrible in the sense of morality. It is not more severe than it ought to be. But when I describe hell as terrible, I describe it that way because the experience of hell is terrible for those who are there. And so we began this morning reminding ourselves from the Scriptures what what God has to tell us about that place called hell. Hell. Now, before we continue continue to observe those things, I want to make a point that I think is very important to be made. It's a point that needs to be spoken very loudly in our present culture, in our present day. And the point is this. Whenever we look to God's Word on any subject, we need to be careful that we do not seek to change God's Word, but rather to be changed by it, Whatever the subject is, that I think we are especially inclined on this particular doctrine of, of condemnation, of judgment, of hell, there is an inclination in the human heart to, to want to change what God's Word says rather than to be changed by the Word of God itself. As an example of this, a few years ago, there was a man in Michigan who sued Zondervan and Thomas Nelson. These are two Bible publishers. And this man sued these two Bible publishers for a total of $70 million. This man is a homosexual. And he argued that because the Bible refers to homosexuality as a sin, his constitutional rights have been violated and that the publishing of these Bibles brought him great emotional difficulty. Here's a snippet from one of the many articles about this. This was very popular when it happened. Fowler, age 39, alleges that Zondervan's Bibles, referring to homosexuality as a sin, have made him an outcast from his family and contributed to physical discomfort and periods of, quote, demoralization, chaos and bewilderment. The intent of the publisher was to design a religious, sacred document to reflect an individual opinion or a group's conclusion to cause, quote, me or anyone else who is a homosexual to endure verbal abuse, discrimination, episodes of hate, and physical violence, including murder. And so that's what this article Said, and that is what this man wrote there at the end in his case that the publishing of these Bibles that declared homosexuality to be a sin brought trouble to him and his fellow homosexuals. Now, one can't help but wonder what he wanted the Bible publishers to do. Were they supposed to ask the translators not to translate God's word accurately? Were they supposed to leave out portions of the Bible? Were they to, supposed to compromise here or there on, on what God's Word actually says? No, I think we would all agree that the reality here is not that the, the Word of God needs to be changed. It was that this man needs to be changed. Right? The issue was not with the Bible. The issue was with the man. Well, there are a few passages in the Bible which people are more prone to try and change rather than changing themselves than those passages that speak on hell. In fact, each of these passages, in the Gospels especially, but also in other places of the New Testament, that describe the reality of this place called hell has been the focus of many who've tried to make the words mean things that they do not mean. People have attempted to reinterpret these passages so that they're less frightening. People have sought to explain these verses away, to take the sting out of them. One of the most popular ways of looking at these verses to try and take the sting out is to say that these passages that talk about hell must be symbolic. To which I say, okay. But if these are symbols... Then just how terrible must the reality be? See, I don't think saying it's symbolic takes the sting out at all. Friends, the church is to be the pillar and the buttress of truth. And therefore, even if every culture on planet Earth takes the stance that hell is not real, we as the church must always be bold in our proclamation of it. Jesus talked about hell a lot, far more than He talked about heaven. And like Him, we must sound the alarm. Even if the people around us put their fingers in their ears and say they will not listen, we must sound the alarm. We must be like Noah, proclaiming the coming flood, even as he built his ark, despite the mockery, despite the persecution. In the end, the truth prevailed, and it always does. And so we must be faithful on this truth. So this morning we saw from Matthew's Gospel that hell is a place of outer darkness and a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I take this to mean that hell is a place of terrible loneliness, a place devoid of light, A place where men and women experience tremendous grief on account of the sinful life that they lived on this earth. A place where they experience an intolerable kind of pain. Mark's Gospel adds that hell is a place where the worm does not die and where the fire is not quenched. And so listen to the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in Mark 9... Verses forty-seven, forty-eight. Jesus says, If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Where the worm does not die. What is Jesus speaking of there? The word that Jesus uses for hell is the word Gehenna, which also happened to be the name of the trash dump outside of Jerusalem. Gehenna was a disgusting place. It was putrid. It was foul. It was a a place known to be crawling with disgusting bugs of all kinds. And the scholars tell us that it is likely that Jesus is referring to either maggots or something very similar to maggots. When He uses this word, we translate it, worm. In fact, Jesus is quoting Isaiah. Isaiah 66, 24, where God declares, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against Me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And so the picture here is that hell is a place where people are living and yet they are dead. Jesus tells us to picture the maggots that eat upon a dead body and then to picture maggots eating upon a dead body where the person is living and living this way for all eternity. And the bugs never get their fill. They never die themselves. They never leave off. They continue to feast upon the body. Hell is a disgusting place, as disgusting as a garbage heap where dead bodies are being eaten by worms. And then Jesus adds that phrase that hell is a place where the fire is not quenched. Remember, most of the pagan peoples of the world cremate their dead. It was very normal in the ancient world for a dead body to be burned. And so Jesus refers here to the burning of a body, but He says that the fire here is never quenched. The the body is never done burning. It's like the burning bush. It is consumed in fire, and yet the fire never goes out, and the bush is not consumed. Jesus is giving us here another picture of never-ending death. The person is alive and conscious and yet their body is undergoing these terrible torments and yet the body never fully dies. The the soul longs for the body to be fully burnt up. The the soul longs for the suffering to end but it doesn't. The, The fire continues. It is never quenched. And as far as the sinner can see into the future, the fire never will be quenched and indeed it never will. Symbolic, maybe. I might even say probably symbolic. But if this is the symbol, if these are the words and the pictures that Jesus drew upon to describe hell, do you expect it to be anything less than this? If hell is such a place that these are the, this is the terminology Jesus uses to describe the suffering that is there, we dare not water it down. We dare not play games and say, well, it can't be that bad. Jesus is telling us this for a reason. Our God is good, but He is not safe. And those who rebel against Him will experience such vengeance. In Luke's Gospel, we find that hell is a place of torment, a place where people can remember their past, a place where people can grieve over their past, a place of eternal hopelessness. Let me show you this in Luke 16. Everybody turn to Luke 16. Remember this this parable, Luke 16 beginning in verse 22. Jesus in the midst of the parable says, this is Luke 16 verse 22. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And so Jesus in this parable describes hell as a place of torment. The, the rich man was in hell in torment, in anguish. In fact, this man was in such anguish that he cries out to Abraham and he says, will, will you send Lazarus, that man I knew in my, in my life on earth, that poor man, will you, will you send Lazarus from heaven with, to tell him to dip his finger in just a bit of cool water and to touch my tongue? This man in hell was desperate for any kind of relief. But Abraham told this man to remember what had transpired during his lifetime. And this seems to indicate that people in hell will be able to know why they are there. They will be able to remember. They they won't be able to argue, God, you're treating me unfairly. No, day after day, their sins will be ever before them. They will remember why they are in the place they are in. And then we also see here that hell is a place of hopelessness. You know, maybe you could endure the tortures and the darkness and the loneliness if you had some glimmer of hope that one day things would be different. But hell is a place of hopelessness. Abraham can do nothing for this man. There is a great chasm fixed between heaven and hell in which none can cross. There is no such thing as one in heaven who was sent to hell or one in hell who pays out his sentence and then is brought to heaven. No. Those in hell are under the just curse of God, and nothing shall ever interfere or lessen the punishment that is justly deserved. So, Jesus had a great deal to say in the Gospels about hell. We've just seen a little bit of it. But it's all frightening, and it's meant to be frightening. But our Lord also tells us about hell through the Apostle Paul, particularly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, where we learn that hell is a place of everlasting destruction. Uh, Jesus already described the worm is never dying and the fire is never being quenched. But lest we believe in some temporary hell. Lest we believe in some sort of purgatory or a hell where people can suffer for a while and then be annihilated out of existence, as some believe, we have a very clear passage to set us straight. Paul says in the middle of verse seven, Second Thessalonians, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus, listen to this, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when He comes on that day. And so when Christ Jesus returns, then it is that the fullness of the wrath of God will come upon those that do not, do, do not know God those who have not obeyed the Gospel, those who have spurned the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are told they will suffer a a punishment of eternal destruction. You're being destroyed, but you're never completely destroyed. Destruction is taking place, but it doesn't end like the new Superman movie. I'm sorry, I'm not trying to make a joke here. It just came to my mind. Remember the, the, the new Superman movie? that like, whole second half of the movie is just these scenes of destruction and they just never end. And they just go on and they just go on and they just go on. And they're Like, isn't the city destroyed yet? Well, that's the, the kind of language here. Everlasting destruction. It just keeps going on and on and on and things keep being destroyed. Th- Thessalonians describes hell that, that way. They will be away from the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, they will be away from the generous, loving, compassionate, caring presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, God is in hell, but God is there in His wrath and His anger. We usually talk about God's presence. We talk about God's presence being with us, with us to strengthen us and to encourage us and to protect us and to provide for us. But, but that kind of presence of God will not exist in hell. God will not be there in any way to save, only to judge. Today is the day of salvation. That day will not be the day of salvation. By then, the saving days will be over, the harvest will be fully reaped, the, the, the wheat and the chaff will have been gathered and and the wheat and the chaff will have been separated, and the wheat taken into the barn, representing heaven, and the chaff being consumed in fire, representing hell. Well this idea of eternity is also emphasized in Revelation nine, verse two. You're familiar with this. Hell is described as a bottomless pit. If you ever taking time to meditate on what is being conveyed there. Hell is a bottomless pit. An angel is given a key, and we read, He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. And so God is revealing to John in a form that, yes, it is likely symbolic, nevertheless... It is a picture of hell as a pit that has no bottom. Once you are cast into it, you are falling, 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 and you're waiting for the bottom and you're waiting for for something solid beneath your feet and it it never comes. You're you're out of control. Your body plummets and this continues. You become disoriented and and it never ends. It's a bottomless pit. You never stop falling that's one way that hell is described and then in revelation 14:11 we're told that hell is a place where its inhabitants have no rest and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night as i've said before there are no there are no bathroom breaks in hell. There are no timeouts. There are no, hold on, God, let me have a breath moments. The torment just continues and continues. You cannot stop to regain your senses. There is no rest. Heaven, heaven is a world of peace. Hell is a world devoid of peace. In heaven, hearts find rest. In heaven, souls find rest. In heaven, minds and bodies will know rest. But not in hell. This is the condemnation of God. No rest. In your mind, in your heart, in your soul, in your body, never any rest. We could go on, talk about hell described as a lake of fire, we could describe hell, Revelation 21.8, place of fire and brimstone, but I, I think you're getting the point here. And I hope you're feeling it. That This condemnation that Paul's talking about in Romans 8.1 is not small. This is not slap on the wrist. This is you have offended a holy God. And this is the condemnation you deserve. And so how should we rejoice in the words, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Well, the third point, and, and, and the, the, the last one I'll make about this idea of condemnation, first, it's a present reality for those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus. Second, this condemnation is terrible. But third, and I've emphasized this throughout, this punishment is just. This condemnation is Just And the reason I've emphasized this throughout is that this is where people, especially in our day, seem to struggle. They hear the biblical language about the horrors of hell and immediately assume this hell cannot be real. Such a punishment is overkill. That is certainly a hell like the one we've been reading about is a punishment that doesn't seem to fit the crime. This hell seems too severe. A good God could never mete out a punishment like this. And yet the Bible, just as clear as it is about the horrors of hell, is also just as clear about its justice. That it is right. That in the moral sense, hell is a good place that ought to exist and that God is right in creating it and sustaining it and maintaining it for all eternity. The penalty handed down in hell is in perfect accord with the nature of the crimes committed. The key to understanding this is to remember that what makes a crime so terrible is not just the crime itself, but the dignity of the one offended. And we see this in our own experience. I've illustrated this in a lot of different ways over the years. Let me do it this way tonight. Suppose I shoot a man in cold blood murder. I just shoot a man and kill him. Now that's terrible. That is a terrible sin in and of itself. But it is also true that who I murdered matters. It does matter who I murdered. Think about it. Suppose the man I shot, suppose the man I murdered was himself a rapist and a murderer and a terrible man who abuses children and wreaks havoc on the lives of others. I still shouldn't have shot him. It's not right for me to take the law into my own hands. I've done a terrible thing in shooting this man. But you see the difference it makes in who it is. Contrast that let's say I shot a police officer. Let's say that I shot a man who who is not just a human being, but one who represents the law itself, one who represents dignity and order and justice in our community. How much worse now is this crime? I've, I've shot a person who spends his day protecting others, a man who represents, or woman, who represents justice. Suppose the man I shot was neither of these. Suppose instead I shot in cold blood the governor of our state or even the president of our nation. You see, these murders would be especially heinous because of what these men represent. To murder the governor is to make myself an enemy of this state. I've attacked not only the man, but the very dignity of the office that that man holds. I've attacked the very rule of law. To attack the president is to declare war on the United States. It is to be an enemy of the office which is supposed to stand for freedom and justice in the free world. You see, dear friends, our sins are not primarily against other people of any kind. Our sins are against God. Our sins are against He who is our Creator and our sustainer, the One who gives us life. What do we think about a man who would kill his own mother? And yet our sins are against the One who created us, who gives us life, who gives us life this very second. Our sins are against the One who sustains us. I curse God with the tongue that God gives me. Every second we have is a gift from God, and every sin that we commit is a sin we commit using the gifts and the abilities that He gives us each moment. Every sin we commit, we commit as human beings bearing the image of God, and therefore every sin we commit is blasphemy of His infinitely holy character. The God we sin against is a God who is worthy of all love, all devotion, all praise, all adoration, all worship. To disregard God and to treat Him as something small is a sin of cosmic treason. Anyone who thinks that hell is too severe has not come to grips with the true worth of God. God has been nothing but good to us and we use His gifts to trample His honor. Friends, the Bible teaches that hell is just, and not one person in hell will ever, in a gazillion years, be able to protest that they are being punished unfairly. So that's our three points. Let me close with some very brief implications of what we've just seen. What can we conclude from the Bible's teaching about condemnation that can serve us well in our Christian lives. Number one, see the importance of imagination in the Christian life. That might surprise you, that's my first point, but think about it. See the importance of imagination in the Christian life. Why? Why do I say that? Well, first of all, I don't mean by that that Christians are to be detached from the real world. I don't mean by that that Christians are to get lost in daydreams and make-believe. That's that's not what I mean. In fact, I, I mean the opposite of that. The Bible is teaching us about reality. These sermons on condemnation and hell today are about something that is very real. And yet, without a little imagination if we are so scientific in our day that all we can believe in is what we can see with these eyes, then we will never be able to accept biblical truth We live in a day in which the imaginations of people are far too often being squelched. We don't believe in miracles. Everything has to be explainable. Everything must be in accord with the natural working of the world. The Bible says Jesus rose from the dead. And my first thought is, I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. Scientists can't prove that people raise from the dead. Therefore, this talk must be foolishness, church. Science is a wonderful gift from God. Science is an enterprise of discovery that I suspect we will continue even in the new heavens and the new earth. But science tells us how the world normally works. Science cannot dictate how the world always works. Science is in over its head when we are talking about realities that are spiritual in nature. Realities that are supernatural, realities beyond the observation abilities of scientists. We need to have minds that can go further than science, minds that can see that we live in a world that is both natural and supernatural, and that these things go together. I could say a lot more on that point. We'll stop. We'll Going to the second point. Parents, develop your children's imagination. Make sure they see the glory of God in this world around them and don't just see everything scientifically. Don't, ever, don't, don't be able to look at an animal and give uh, you know, the Latin scientific classification of the animal but not be able to sit and look at the animal and wonder what makes this thing breathe. How does this thing have life? Right? It, don't lose that in our scientific world. Number two, implication of what we've seen. We should take from the Bible's teaching on the horrors of hell just how vile our sin really is in the sight of God. Just how vile our sin really is in the sight of God. When we think about the condemnation that is upon all humanity, when we think about the terrors of the eternity spent in never ceasing torment. We need to remember why it is that God is so mad. Why is God so mad? He's not recklessly mad. God has not lost control of Himself. He is justly mad. He is righteously mad. He is, he is mad and not sinning. Why is God so mad? It is because our sins are actually that bad. And if that's how God sees our sins, that's how we must see our sins. We must not ever treat sin as something small. Not one sin should be taken lightly. We are so prone to focus on certain sins and to hate them and to abstain from them while we wink at other sins and and continue to give them a place in our lives. We despise grievous sins like murder or rape or child abuse or or even lying or stealing, but we don't seem to care much about other sins in our lives, the the bitterness that we hold in our hearts towards one person, the the unkindness that we show at times, our, our impatience or our gluttony or our idleness. We say amen when the preacher rails against those who teach false doctrine and lead God's people astray. But what do we say when... And he begins to talk about not being greedy or materialistic or loving other things in this world too much. Friends, even the sins that we consider respectable or common or normal or small are vile enough in the sight of God to be worthy of the terrors of an infinite hell. There is no sin which God is willing to overlook as small. There is no sin which God is willing to wink at. Sin, all sin is rebellion against God, a distortion of His image, a dishonoring of His great name. And therefore, the mature Christian, the mature Christian lives with an alertness about him or her. A sober mind, always being careful not to fall into sin. There is a carefulness that characterizes the mature Christian. It's not that he or she is legalistic. It's not that he or she just loves the law too much and doesn't care about the gospel. No! But a Christian who lives in the gospel and loves the gospel is still loves God so much that he or she doesn't want to give in to this vile thing called sin. And so there's a sober-mindedness about the way he or she lives, a, a hesitancy to speak, a, a willingness to be slow in making decisions, always wanting to pray first and to think first and being careful in the way he or she lives. We must... Be sure that we hold the view of sin that God's hold. All sin is vile. Third implication. This will be our theme in the next sermon. Is the utter importance of being in Christ Jesus. The utter importance of being in Christ Jesus. Friends, feel again the weight of the words no condemnation. No condemnation means no hell no eternal torment, no lake of fire, no fire and brimstone, no hopelessness, no loneliness, no fire that cannot be quenched, no worm that will never die, no outer darkness, no weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of this was ours, and it has been taken away from us. And it has been replaced by the very opposite of those things eternal joy, eternal blessing. Streets of gold, fellowship with the saints of God, living in the presence of God Himself. We're talking about the end of all pain, the end of all sorrow, the end of all death. That is the joy of no condemnation, but it is a joy that belongs only to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so how vital is it that you know and have confidence of whether or not you are in Christ Jesus? So that's why our whole next sermon will be devoted to answering that question. But for tonight, because there is a sense of urgency here, let me just remind you that to be in Christ Jesus includes being a man or woman of faith in Christ Jesus. You trust Jesus. You believe on Jesus. You are living upon His mercy. You are not trying to be right with God by your own works. No, you plead the blood of Jesus and His death on the cross. It is through faith and faith alone that we are in Christ Jesus. And then last of all, the fourth implication. Having seen these truths about the condemnation of God, let us be freshly propelled into the work of evangelism. How can we believe what the Bible teaches us about hell and be content while those we know are headed towards that place. How can we smile at people and pretend to be their friends if we have not pleaded with them to know Christ? If we do not plead with our unbelieving friends to know Christ, are we truly their friends? Can we say we love anyone if we know the nature of this hell to which they are headed, and yet we do not warn them, and warn them with a kind of urgency and a kind of seriousness that a place like hell deserves. When we come to grips with the doctrine of God's condemnation, We will not let something small like embarrassment or nervousness or fear keep us from pleading with others to know Jesus Christ. These things shouldn't matter if we take what the Bible says about hell to heart. Suddenly these obstacles seem small compared to what this person is about to face. There are people that need to hear these warnings. They need to hear these doctrines about hell. It will do no good when they are in hell to say, but I just didn't feel right about telling you. It felt awkward. It felt embarrassing. It felt nervous to me. Friends, we need to have an eternal perspective and not an earthly one. If your boldness is used by God to bring even one sinner to Jesus Christ, it will be something celebrated for a gazillion years, especially by that one person. That person in heaven will praise God that you were willing to come and to talk to them and to plead with them and to reason with them about these things. They will praise God that you loved them and talked to them about the gospel. And friends, certainly those who are in hell that you went to and you talked to about the Lord Jesus Christ and you pleaded with them, they will not begrudge you. They will only wish that they had listened. They will only wish that they had realized that you were being a true friend to them. They will see how foolish they were not to hear. So those you witness to who end up in heaven will be so thankful to God you witnessed. And those who are in hell will wish like anything that they had listened. Let us not let small things, and I don't mean to belittle feelings of nervousness or awkwardness or things like that, but, but folks, in light of hell and the tortures that are there, we ought not to let those things keep us from doing what God has called us to do. Especially to give a reason for the hope that is within us whenever we are asked. We must end here, but thank you for being patient listeners. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a present reality for those who are not in Christ Jesus. Condemnation will be terrible for those who experience it. Condemnation will be just. But let us rejoice through the Gospel, through Jesus. We live in this declaration of our reality. No condemnation. Can you rejoice in that? I pray that you can. Let's pray.